0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Julian Morrow. Welcome to the Roundtable. In August, the Hobart City Council made a decision that's believed to be a first for any Australian council, voting in favour of removing the colonial statue of former Tasmanian Premier William Crowther. The Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre had been calling for the removal of the statue for years because Crowther was involved in mutilating the remains of a Tasmanian Aboriginal man, William Lan, removing his skull and sending it to the Royal College of Surgeons in London. At the time Crowther was suspended from his role as an honorary medical officer for his involvement in that act, but there's no reference to that on his statue which is said to be erected by a grateful public to perpetuate the memory of long and zealous political and professional services. So on the roundtable today, we are discussing colonial monuments and different approaches to reimagining public spaces and addressing history in them. And we've got packed in tightly around the roundtable four guests who have engaged with these questions in different ways. troll woman Julie Goff is an artist, writer and curator at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. The crowd, the statue, was in a way a canvas for one of Julie's works. We're also joined by Dr. Matthew Rofe, who's an urban geographer at the University of South Australia. Matthew specialises in contested landscapes, and his latest research analyses monuments in Adelaide's cultural precinct. Welcome, Matthew.
2: Good morning, Julian, from the unceded and the traditional lands of the Kaurna people.
1: Indeed. Uh, thanks very much for that. We welcome also uh, Paul Carter, who's a professor in the School of Architecture and Urban Design at RMIT and has also published a, a wide number of works, including uh, a work entitled Decolonising Governance. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Jane. Good morning. Great to have you, Paul. Paul's also the creative director of Material Thinking, which is a Melbourne-based creative studio, and co-directs Nunga Budya, which is an Aboriginal-owned cultural consultancy based in Perth. And we're also joined on the roundtable today by Indigenous author and historian Tony Birch, a founding member of the Melbourne School of Discontent. Welcome, Tony. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you too. So let's come on to you, uh, Matthew. Uh, You're uh, about to have a paper published in um, the Land Research Journal. Could you tell us about the research you've done on uh, public memorials in Adelaide's cultural precinct?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So as you say, Julian, I've got a paper coming out uh, in Landscape Research Journal. And with my dear friend and colleague, uh, Michael Ripmeester from Rock University in Canada, we're leading a project on contested landscapes. And here in Adelaide, my work has looked at Adelaide's cultural heart, um, and it's, it's asked the question of, does this space reflect the diversity of South Australian community with a specific focus upon, um, does it recognise the contributions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, to South Australia. And that's a pretty stark, alert,
1: yeah. It's not good. <laughs> what did you find, Matthew? Well,
2: the cultural precinct is only a really small area, but to give your listeners a bit of a, an appreciation, so it's only 0.15 kilometres squared that I examined. But in that area are all of the major cultural precincts of, of colonial power, um, so the University of Adelaide, the art gallery, the museum, the library, the governor's residence uh, and so forth. Uh, and within that space, there are 256 individual memorial items or artefacts, as we call them. But only six recognise mm. specific Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander
1: people or broadly their contributions to, to our society. And I was amazed to hear that uh, even though South Australia has the first and only Indigenous person to become a a governor in Australia, there's no memorial to him. No, no. That's uh, Yorta Yorta man, Sir
2: Douglas Nichols, um, who, as you say, was the first Indigenous person to hold a vice regal position um, and numerous, numerous uh, sort of Commonwealth um, uh, awards and recognitions. Mm. But you're right. There, there is no recognition formally to his service and his contribution.
1: Thanks very much, Matthew. Julie Goff, I wonder if you could give us your reaction to the decision to remove the statue of William Crowther, and also tell us about your work, Breathing Space, which interacted with the statue in a different way.
0: Well, with the um, council decision, um, firstly, it was an immense relief uh, that this has That that happened. That was my instantaneous kind mm. of it was this relief, and then. Um, this sense of of hope for much broader than the removal of the statue, that we're actually able to move, not be uh, held static and in this uh, what the statue represents. If we can't actually deal with with that, what else can we achieve? Not much. we're kind of trapped. We were right. trapped in the, the the problem of the statue. So yeah, I have a great hope now um, for what can happen, and not just with Hobart City Council, but across our whole island. Um, and in terms of um, the work with the the statue himself or itself, it was um, really, I think, an important part of uh, bringing the community along, as in the mainstream community in particular, along on our journey to um, understand our Aboriginal perspectives about particularly uh, Crowther and his deeds and also... Um, the the possibility of of, um, kind of creative work. Yes. Yeah, that it becomes something um, kind of slower and a slower way to absorb, something that can be out for a few, you know, in the public realm for a few months. Yeah and uh, not be all text-based. So, yeah, the artwork for me was a, a means by which I could um, give people breathing space literally by encasing him in a, in a crate.
1: Yes, I think it's good to, to describe that. The the, the the work was called Breathing Space and what you did was, was encase the bronze figure of William Crowther in a black timber crate and putting a black panel over the engraving. And I suppose in a way that raises the question of, whether, in terms of the the impact, it's better to remove a statue or to to, to rework and address the uh, the historical questions that need to be addressed in the public um, sphere itself. What do you think on that, Julie?
0: Yeah, I think it was incredibly important because um, for for Aboriginal people and our, our lives, we avoid that park generally, we find it very problematic mm. to be like, well, actually it's um, emotionally um, difficult to spend time near, near in the vicinity of, of um, statues, many statues, but this man in particular, um, what, you know, as a physical kind of reincarnation of him, you know, in the form Absolutely. of a human. Yeah. It's not an obelisk or a plaque only, but that. So, yeah, th- that was a way to give people, everybody, this chance to re- Refigure, rethink the park without the space without him, and t- to realise the sky doesn't fall, you know, fall down if you um, even in that manner remove him from the public gaze.
1: Thanks very much, Julie. If I could come to you now, uh, Tony Birch. Uh, you were involved in a City of Melbourne publication which was called Forms for Monuments to Complex History and it had stats that were pretty similar to the ones that we heard from Matthew earlier. I think it was 525 monuments erected in Melbourne and only five related to Indigenous people. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the issue of removing uh, statues and memorials that are now very problematic? Versus the concept of reworking them in some way.
3: Yeah, look, I think just I can sum this up very quickly. I think firstly, um, one of the things we need to note is that Julie Goff's work in this area is absolutely dynamic, and I think she's doing the most important work mm. across Australia. So I'd ask people to catch up with Julie's work. Secondly, in regard to the Crawford statue, I actually defer to anything that the Tasmanian Aboriginal community sought because this is the murder, following the murder, sorry, of one of their great leaders, William Lann, and the, the uh, terrible atrocities that his body experienced. So I support them totally. Um, Nala Mansell did have an idea that the Crowford statue could be decapitated. Um, her second thought was it then be placed in a tip. I mean, I do have some um, sense that if the, the statue would have been left at all, I certainly would have taken his head off and that would have made a good talking point for people. Um, I think also that some statues, by retaining them, um, you can force them to tell another story. And people may know that the um, giant Captain Cook statue just outside Cairns has been removed. And if anyone has seen that... It suffers both a form of gigantism and anorexia at the same time, which makes the statue look quite odd. I personally would have left that monument in place because it would then have been a great monument to the ludicrous nature of most monuments in Australia. So it could have said something else. Um, And finally, I, I, I often sway on this because... At some level, I think there should be statues themselves are pointless. They are quite static, so maybe we should have no statues. But then thinking about the issue of South Australia and the, the late governor, um, Sir Pastor Doug Nicholls, I did have to think then momentarily that certainly there's no statue or commemoration to Sir Douglas Nicholls in South Australia, but there is in the Parliament yes. Gardens in Melbourne. And it is it is a wonderful... Place for people to come and contemplate the work of Sir Pastor Doug and his wife. So, in that sense, I I have to, in a sense, admit there's a contradiction within myself about these issues. But I think you can contest particular uh, monuments. But again, in regard to Crowther, I think that his history is is quite um, violent. And therefore, if, um, as people like Julie say, it's given the Tasmanian Aboriginal community a sense of peace. I would um, concur with that completely.
1: Thanks very much, Tony. Uh, Paul Carter, if I could come to you now. Uh, You've been involved in the creation of public spaces. It was interesting to hear Tony think, you know, partially, uh, that maybe maybe we just need to move beyond monuments to individual people. I wonder if you could tell us about some of the work you've been involved in in terms of creating uh, public spaces. You you helped on the development of um, uh, Yagan Square, a precinct in the heart of Perth City. Uh, What did you you do there, and, and how were different uh, cultural groups involved in that work?
4: Well, first of all, to just say, uh, very much uh, agree with Tony, and also about the estimation of Julie's fantastic work. Um, of course, the interesting thing in this context is that Jagen uh, Square was named for a resistance warrior who was decapitated by early colonial settlers. So there's a direct parallel with the situation in, in um, Tasmania. Um, but what's complicated about um, that uh, initiative, which I guess was about six years ago it started to form this new public space, was the way in which that decision was made to celebrate, if that's the word, to celebrate Yegin. Um, What was the What were the politics of reconciliation that underwrote that process? And that became, in fact, the journey over the next four years, so um, there was uh, an engagement um, strategy, it was called, which recognised our sovereignty from the beginning and looked to try to organise the way in which an anti-monumental um, process of remembering uh, would proceed through um, a sort of cyclic um, discussion with the elders and what came out of that, of course, was a process that, that was foregrounding the story. It wasn't about monuments. It was about developing a new dialogue of understanding. Um, now, the sequel to that is important. And that is that if you are going to um, try to deal with the monumental past, the colonial past, the most important thing probably is not the monuments, it's the stories they represent, mm. And Julie mentioned bringing the community along, walking side by side. And I think that's the key point. Um, it, whether you knock a statue down or replace it, it's the stories that really matter. So at Jaegen, there was definitely an attempt to tell a new story about the beginnings of uh, you know, the Swan River settlement. And there was it was reflected in the stories that were being told through the process of designing that square. But the squares are political spaces, um, just as monuments are. And so there really is no alternative to recognising that uh, changing the story is a political process. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, we as artists obviously try to be catalysts of that process and to make it palpable and material so that people can feel these paths emotionally. But the question of governance always comes back to um, educating a public will for change.
1: Thanks very much, uh, Paul Carter. Um, there have been lots of I- interesting examples of um, artists and public planners uh, coming up with creative new forms for monuments. Julie Goff, I-, I wonder, are there particular examples that stand out to you as examples of how um, new, mon- new forms of monuments can be made to work and tell the sort of story that we just heard Paul talking about? <laughs>
0: Oh, that's a great question, and I can't. I can't, I don't really have the answer. I I think that there's it's interesting to see how they're modified through time before ultimate decisions are made. How they're wrapped or um people engage with them. That shows that their journey that they've no longer kind of fixed forms. That they're on the journey to somewhere else, mm. which has happened you know two weeks ago here in Hobart. But I um yeah as far as um, just a lot of reworking of, of uh, and ways to in, uh, kind of interact with the plinth, which I think is probably what will happen here for a period is um, so yeah, just I think de, you know monumentalizing this the space to mm. give people a chance to yeah, re-engage and rethink how a, a society wants to represent itself. so that that's what's I think needed.
1: Thanks very much, Julie. Matthew Rofe, what are your thoughts on this idea of counter monuments? I'm a very much a proponent of
2: opponent of counter monuments, and I think um, Tony, you know, you, you mentioned that it's important that we think about creative and innovative ways that we force, and I think your words were to force monuments and memorials to tell other stories. And I think that that's critical um, because history and heritage are instructive; they teach us something. And they, I think the phase we're in now, the period we're in now, we can either accept monuments um, and that they teach us something about colonial stability, or that we challenge them publicly uh, and collectively, uh, Paul, as you were talking about. And we, we harness that educative opportunity of the historic narrative, and we seek to recontextualize. I'm a very much a proponent of recontextualisation. Um, but on a case-by-case basis. So some statues, yes, will need to be removed. Others could be modified. I'm quite a, a proponent of removing uh, colonial figures from their plinths. And, and so we no longer look up at them in awe, as it were, but we can stand eye to eye with them. And through uh, a more inclusive and a more holistic historical narrative, we can, we can interrogate them.
1: Mm. Um, I was really struck, uh, Tony Birch, in that uh, City of Melbourne uh, document that I believe you were involved in, uh, which talks about the uh, the Square of the Invisible Monument, which is a project in uh, a, a town in Germany begun by an artist uh, who started secretly digging up cobblestones from the public square um, and then engraving them with names of the 2146 Jewel. Um, Jewish cemeteries that were in use in the country before the Second World War. But then he would then put the cobblestones back in, but but face down. So if you like, the intervention was not evident on the front of the, on the face of the uh, the cobblestones. And that was done without permission, but then retrospectively gained approval from the provincial parliament. Is that the sort of uh, example of sort of, I suppose, moving from monuments into artworks and retelling stories? in a way that can can really impact on a whole community?
3: Well, what it indicates, of course, is that the, the cleverness and the innovation of that idea does, I think, what's already been discussed this morning. It opens up a conversation and a dialogue and... Forces us to think about both the history and the monument in different ways. So it's very clever in that sense. And yes, I, I'm fully supportive of that. Now, while this second point of mine might be controversial, it's the same way that defacement works. Now, I'm not the first person to talk about this. Um, an Australian anthropologist, Michael Tausick wrote a whole book on this. But I think it's interesting that we're talking again about looking up at the the, the grand figure of history. And I know that when Matthew Flinders monument on on Swanson Street, Melbourne, was to face with the um, word murderer some years ago. Um, I think that's unfortunate for Matthew Flinders, but the fact is that then a important conversation took place. So often when we, we see monuments being to your face, there is public outrage, but sometimes it's the, the only means that people find for a conversation to take place. So I think there are many different ways that we can interrogate monuments. Sometimes it may lead to a removal, such as the Crowfer statue. But I think artists' um, really good art, art practice does, in fact, really um, encourage us and, and prod us to to think about issues that we had forgotten about or that we prefer not to think about.
1: Yeah, the, the tension between sort of authorised and unauthorised reworking is another fascinating aspect of uh, this discussion. We're discussing uh, statues and public spaces on the round table. And um, Paul Carter, uh, that example from Germany that I mentioned, uh, in a way has a parallel with some work that you've done in Australia. Um, I think it's, is it Niram new which is a pattern of tiles on the ground of Federation Square. Could you tell us about that?
4: Well, um, if I may, I must pick up on Tony's point um, and just say, actually, talking about Yagen Square, because one of the um, outcomes of that sort of process of, of negotiation was um, a, an artwork that, that we did there. And was, it was originally called Ghost, with the idea of host and ghost, and it was a celebration of Uriel. Who was another resistance fighter from the early the early period um, in Perth, and um, who made a habit of walking in straight lines through the uh, the fences and the literally the doorways of the emerging colonial structures to get to her um, the places where she needed to go. So she made these straight lines through the city. And these straight lines, of course, were colonial lines. That was her protest against um, a system that was insisting on rectilinear division and exclusion. So um, I created a series of silhouettes. Um, and these silhouettes are distributed along two axes that are the paths that she, that she would have taken. Um, and they are inscribed with a, a font which actually uses a, her digging stick motif, which was the weapon she used to break down and translate from place to place i'm not making any claims to the work itself except that it went through a process of why jack our approval so there was some uh, community um, momentum behind it but it was a present absence so what's there is um the responsibility to walk in those paths and as you do so to realize that you are walking in somebody else's tracks and uh, with all the implications of that for breaking through um the present and past architectural forms there. Um, but I also think, and I don't know what Julie feels about this, but I also think that in a, in a period of, um, shall we say, political um, opposition to these kinds of change or resistance, there are also secret signs, um, which in a sense you can't talk about. But I remember working on a, uh, an Olympic commission years ago in Sydney, and we put secret things in there for the future, Mm. Um, and whether ever they'll be found, I don't know, but it seemed to be um, an authentic response to, in that particular case, the very problematic occupation of country there. Um, So I think, you know, um, public art is also historical art. It's also aligned with um, the, the material histories and the political environments in which it works, and so there can be... Uh, different ways of marking, if you like, that passage.
1: Yeah, there'll be lots of people now pouring over those projects, Paul, looking for the secret signs. <laughs> um, uh, what a nice way to spend a Sunday afternoon, I suppose. Um, uh, we've had a text message in which raises an issue that uh, I wanted to come to as well. We've talked about monuments and counter monuments. And he's texted in to say, "Well, with regard to obsolete statues and monuments, uh, should we have a national museum for statues and monuments that have been removed with explanations of why they've been removed and those sorts of things, which actually reminds me of a, an interview I did on Sunday Extra uh, a couple of years ago, because I believe um, in Germany there is a a museum which which does exactly that, has a a collection of statues which have been removed and explains them. Uh, Julie Goff, is is that something that you think um, should be part of this process of retelling stories as well, actually remembering the things that we've decided not to celebrate in public?
0: Yeah, yeah, we we definitely don't want to erase, we just want to um, kind of, you know, augment and and update and provide um, society a chance to reflect and be able to access what's happened in the past, including anything that is modified, such as moving statues. But it's tricky if you start creating a space for for these sort of demoted these figures that have, you know, been outed because um, unless they're very kind of diverse in in the reasons for, you know, what they represent, what they did, because they could then be a place of homage or gathering for, you know, the, those that support may for some reason have support those figures. So I kind of think there's a danger in, in moving them elsewhere to to be, um, yeah, that there's a potential there. Like how, how to deal with them is a really huge and interesting question. I mean, I kind of like... Um, the um the decapitation idea, but that that was a bit um that's fairly one sort of you know on the spectrum of what might happen. Um yeah, I think we we should chart all the possibilities and and discuss you know why or where or how or you know is anything forever as well. Like yeah. we could he could be mobilized in different places across the you know, generations to come. Um it doesn't look like melting him is is uh, on the table. So you know melt. Sort of um, disposal in that manner, but so yeah, where he might move to is is really interesting to, and really important part of part two of this.
1: Absolutely, thanks, Julie, uh, Dr. Matthew Rove. What, what are your thoughts on the idea of a museum for removed statues and monuments?
2: Uh, it's a very interesting one, and, and as as you know, my fellow roundtable members have said, I think. All all possibilities should be on the table. Interestingly, there there are spaces in the world that do that very thing. Um, so, Grutas Park in Lithuania is a is a park where a whole lot of the uh, the former Soviet statues, grand busts of Lenin and Stalin and so forth, have been removed and been placed in this park. Um, and it's become quite a tourist attraction for people to go and, and see these, uh, these diminished, um, Julie to pick up on your words, these diminished individuals. Um, so it, it's definitely a possibility and as I, I think um, we should be very open to all possibilities moving ahead.
1: Uh, Tony Birch, does the Melbourne School of Discontent have an official position on uh, the National Museum for removed statues?
3: I can tell you now very quickly, Julian, this is this is my moment in the sun. We actually have a plan, and we put this some time ago, that one of our co-founders, Professor Gary Foley, would lead a bus tour across the nation, something like Prasour, Queen of the Desert, and we would visit all of these colonial uh, monuments. This is why we're so disappointed that Captain Cook has been taken down in Cairns. And at each of these monuments, Professor Foley would give a counter-lecture of the history of these um, dastardly figures. Now we think this would be a wonderful cultural event and an amazing tourist attraction in its own right.
1: Sounds like a, a good tour to come. Thanks very much, Tony. Um, that that's fascinating. Paul Carter is is part of this really that we should we should stop thinking of the public art and public spaces as permanent things and just constantly refresh them somehow.
4: Well, it's funny. I was listening to um, what, um, what Tony was saying before, and it reminded me, going back to the, the German example, of the situation in in um, Mitte, um, in the old Jewish quarter, where um, there's a very famous uh, monument um, which sits outside the, um, one of the one of the old cemeteries. And when tourists go to that, they assume that that monument was designed for that particular space. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a focus um, of uh, meditation and mm. of, uh, of remembering. But in fact, the, uh, the monument was uh, taken from somewhere else. So it's basically been recycled. And in its other place, um, outside Berlin, it had a very different meaning. It actually referred to a particular form of uh, torture.
1: And that's where we're going to have to leave our roundtable discussion today. But thanks very much to you, Professor Paul Carter. And thanks to all our guests on the roundtable, including, of course, Dr. Julie Goff, artist and curator at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, Dr. Matthew Rofe, urban geographer from the University of South Australia, and Indigenous author and historian Tony Birch. I'm Julian Morrow. Thanks very much for listening.